President Trump surprises the world by brokering a meeting with Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea. He rolls out his big tariff plan, and we will check the mailbag. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Every news cycle is now 33.3 milliseconds long. That's how fast the news moves these days. Yesterday, there were a bevy of headlines coming out of the Trump administration. We'll get to all of them. We'll do full analysis of the president's big announcement that he wants to meet with Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, in just a second. First, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Blue Apron. So everyone in the office is using Blue Apron. People all over the country are using Blue Apron. That's for a reason. Blue Apron is the leading meal kit delivery service in the United States. And here's the way that it works. They send you the freshest ingredients, all prepackaged, in the proper amounts, and you sit in your house and you cook with your family. There's no more fun thing than cooking with your kids. I know I do it with my daughter all the time. It's a blast. And not only that, when you cook that fresh home-cooked meal, it just tastes better. It's better to eat at home with the kids. Now, I'm in a situation in my house where I've got such young children that when we go to a restaurant, there's a good shot that some table is going to get pushed over. So eating at home is a must. When you have young kids, there's nothing better than eating at home. And there's nothing easier than making it happen with Blue Apron. They're the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country, and they offer a wide variety of plans. They offer convenience and variety. They deliver fresh pre-portioned ingredients, step-by-step -step recipes right to your door. These can be cooked in under 45 minutes. The menu changes every single week based on what's in season. It's designed by Blue Apron's in-house culinary team, and they offer 12 new recipes. Every week, customers can pick two, three, four recipes, depending on what best fits your schedule. And of course, they send only the highest quality ingredients. It's just awesome. And Blue Apron is treating Ben Shapiro listeners to 30 bucks off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash Shapiro. That's blueapron.com slash Shapiro. We're talking about meals that make you feel like a gourmet. We're talking pan-fried chicken breast with sweet and tangy zucchini, quick bucatani with broccoli, and pecorino cheese. Don't even know what that is, but I'm looking at a picture of it. It looks amazing. Italian-style shrimp and sweet peppers, good for my non-Jewish friends. Over Fragola Sarda Pasta, so many amazing sounding meals and you'll be making these in your house with the greatest of ease blueapron.com slash shapiro means that you're getting 30 bucks off your first order when you use that slash shapiro blue apron is a better way to cook again it's fresher ingredients it tastes better and it's more fun the family that cooks together stays together blueapron.com slash shapiro again get 30 dollars off and let them know that we sent you by using that slash shapiro okay so the big announcement yesterday from the Trump administration is that President Trump was now open to meeting with Kim Jong-un and they were attempting to broker some sort of meeting, maybe in Pyongyang, maybe in the middle of, of North Korea. It's possible. They're talking about the president doing this in May. Well, there are a few issues with this. And, and it's very interesting to watch as the right and the left split on this issue because the left cheered when President Obama, you remember when he was Senator Obama in 2008, in a speech, he said that he would meet with the leaders of Iran, North Korea, without preconditions. Right? He would meet with them without getting anything in return to even sit at the table with them. And a lot of people, people like me, said, that's terrible. Why would you possibly do that? Because now you're giving legitimacy to evil regimes without them having to give up anything. And well, now, President Trump seems to be doing some of the same sort of stuff, and people on the right are split. There are a bunch of people on the right who think this is just great, and a bunch of people on the right who think it kind of stinks. And then there are a bunch of folks on the left who celebrated when Obama said that. Oh, look at that. It's a new, open foreign policy. It's just going to be amazing. And now Trump's doing it, and they're confused. Are they supposed to be mad, or are they supposed to be happy? And so you're seeing this bizarre split in alliances among political allies and, and weird new alliances forming among political enemies, all about Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un. So first, we have to do a little bit of background here. So Kim Jong-un, obviously, is the dictator of the most repressive country on planet Earth. It is basically a giant gulag. Thousands of people are still in prison camps today under Kim Jong-un, and he has obviously been threatening the world with nuclear weapons. He's been test-firing ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are apparently capable of hitting the United States. He's been testing more and more powerful nuclear weapons. He's been threatening shipping lanes, and he's been using bellicose language toward South Korea. Now, what's weird is that South Korea has moved in the direction of appeasement. So they've elected their own sort of Neville Chamberlain figure. Uh, that would be the president of North Korea, whose, uh, whose name is Moon. And the president of North Korea is, is committed to what he calls a sunlight policy. The sunlight policy is a policy of detente with the North Koreans. President Moon Jae-in is actually the guy who conveyed Kim's supposed offer to meet to the Americans. His office said that North Korea, quote, has ample intention of holding talks with the United States. And he has another agenda here, which is that he is not particularly fond of the U.S. having a military presence in South Korea. Now, it is the U.S. military presence in South Korea that essentially guarantees there's not another Korean War. 
It's the American presence in South Korea that guarantees that North Korea, maybe with Chinese support, doesn't walk across that 38th parallel and just walk right into the heart of Seoul. Because the fact is that the United States has a, a trigger mechanism uh, in foreign policy. We have a, a trigger mechanism, meaning that we have a, a certain number of troops that are along the border. And if that border were to be breached, the United States would immediately be enmeshed in a war with the North Koreans. The North Koreans know that, and they know the minute they step over the border, the United States comes in and, and eviscerates them, and that's the end of that war. If the United States were to remove support from the South Koreans, the calculus would change very quickly. And at the very least, the North Koreans and the Chinese could pressure the South Koreans for all sorts of concessions. They could push them into their own sphere of influence on trade, on defense. It could get very ugly very quickly without the U.S. continuing to, to be there and, and allying with the South Koreans on a military level. But the current regime in South Korea, the current administration in South Korea, is not real fond of that. They don't want the United States deploying anti-missile technology in South Korea. They don't want the United States deploying troops in South Korea. And so they're honestly sort of working on behalf of the North Koreans to make a move that would push the United States out to the fringe on South Korean, uh, on South Korean ground. So all of that is the background. Of course, Trump has been using very bellicose language with regard to the North Koreans. The North Koreans have been using bellicose language with regard to Trump. They've basically been tweeting at each other. Trump tweeted that he has a bigger button than Kim Jong-un, which is obviously true. And Kim Jong-un has said that the United States will bathe in fire and all this kind of stuff. And so the, the talking point for people who are big Trump fans is that Trump forced the North Koreans to the table with all of this language. That Trump showed he wasn't going to budge, and now the North Koreans are going to come to the table and they're going to cave. That seems unlikely to me. It seems more like this is a calculated ploy by the, by the North Koreans to gain concessions from the West in exchange for an empty promise. The reason I say this is because this has been the North Korean way of doing business for nigh on 60 years at this point. They've constantly threatened the West. They've constantly gotten concessions. They've constantly gotten cash and food and even nuclear help under the 1994 framework, North Korea negotiated by Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter. Under all of that, the North Koreans have always gained and the West has always lost. The North Koreans have never felt the need to give up their nuclear program. They've continued to progress their nuclear program even as we continue to sign checks to them. So this all started yesterday with the South Korean security advisor, Chung Yu Yong. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, but he, he said that North Korea is now committed to denuclearization. I'll explain what he means by this in a second because if you read the headline, that sounds great. North Korea is going to get rid of its nukes. If you know what he means, it's not that great. Here's what he had to say. I told President, President Trump that in our meeting, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said he is committed to denuclearization. Kim pledged that North Korea will refrain from any further nuclear or missile tests. He understands that the routine joint military exercises between the Republic of Korea and the United States must continue. Okay, so basically that's the, the South Korean government saying, well, Kim said he's not going to fire any more ICBMs or test any more missiles. Well, we're not super worried about the test at this point. We're worried about the continued development of the technology because he can restart the test anytime he wants. A promise to stop tests so that he can get in the room with Trump and get a picture walking out with Trump and show his own people that he is a powerful leader on par with Trump is, is fine with him. I mean, if that means six weeks of refraining from firing missiles, he can probably handle that. Remember, it's already the middle of March. May is coming up really quickly. So all he has to, so basically he's promised that for the next six weeks he won't fire a missile. Whoop de doo. Whoop de doo. When he says that North Korea is committed to denuclearization, understand the absolute stated program of the North Korean government is we want denuclearization of the entire peninsula. What that means is we want the United States to remove its troops from South Korea. So we'll get rid of our nuclear program if and only if the United States removes its troops from South Korea and the United States stops engaging in military exercises with the South Koreans. I think that Kim wants to make that pitch directly to Trump. He wants to say, listen, we can walk out of here with the greatest deal. You'll win the Nobel Peace Prize. Right? We'll walk out of here and you'll have been the guy who disarmed the Kim regime and I'll have been the guy who allowed the Korean Peninsula to finally stand up on its own. He can make a nationalist appeal to Trump and it would be a bad move by Trump because again, if the United States does not have troops in South Korea, this radically changes the situation on the ground, not only militarily, but in terms of economics and trade, in terms of foreign policy, spheres of influence, protection of particular trade corridors. Right? All of this goes in by the wayside if the United States were to pull its troops out of South Korea, which is why we've never really considered it before. 
It's possible, however, that Trump falls for that routine. So the question in Trump meeting with North Korea is, is this Trump and Gorbachev, right? Is this Reagan and Gorbachev, where Reagan basically strong arms Gorbachev and refuses to make concessions to Gorbachev? Or is this Nixon to China? Is this Trump goes to the North Koreans and the North Koreans lie to him and then he buys it because now he's going to get a political win out of it? Well, it certainly sounds like Trump is very positive about all of this. He sees this as a big win. Here's Trump talking about North Korea acting very positively all of a sudden. We're going to see. They uh, seem to be acting positively, but we're going to see. Well, no, and I'm willing to go, as you probably noticed uh, this morning, where we sent out through social media a statement, willing to go either way. Hopefully, it's going to be the proper way. The proper way is the way that everybody knows uh, and everybody wants. Okay, so you know, th this is all very nice and very happy-dappy-do. He tweeted something out similar yesterday about about North Koreans. He said, great progress is being made. He said, Kim Jong-un talked about denuclearization with the South Korean representatives, not just to freeze. Also, no missile testing by North Korea during this period of time. Great progress being made, but sanctions will remain until an agreement is reached. Meeting being planned. Okay, so he sounds very positive about all of this. And the way that Trump fans are playing this is that Trump has won, right? The, the little rocket man blink. This is what Sean Hannity says, that Trump has, has shellacked Kim Jong-un into surrender. Of course, this is what Sean is going to say. Sean is a big Trump fan. Obviously, he thinks everything Trump does is, is a work of, of magnificent genius. Uh, here was his take. Major breaking news tonight. A huge foreign policy win for President Trump. Little rocket man blinks. Now, the president's tough rhetoric, his bold action, his severe sanctions, they appear to be working tonight. President Trump is accepting an invitation to meet with the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un by May. And Pyongyang is agreeing to stop all nuclear and missile tests while these talks are underway. And the sanctions, they will continue. Okay, that is not exactly the correct take, I think. I think the idea that, that there is a big blink here by Kim, the question is, what is Kim giving up? And the answer is nothing. Right? Kim, Kim is giving up nothing, and he's going to get a picture with Trump walking out arm in arm, hands out raised, right, like Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler. Uh, and you know that, that's, that's a real possibility. The question here is, are those fabled negotiation skills of Trump so magical? Is he really going to be able to get into a room with Kim and then get Kim to denuclearize and we retain all of our troops there? We still have sanctions that, that snap back into place if something should go wrong. Uh, we still have verifiability of their denuclearization. Are all those things really going to happen? Do you think they're really going to happen? Because I'm very skeptical they're, they're going to happen. I'm very skeptical the Kim regime is going to give up all of that just because Trump tweeted some nasty things about Kim. It doesn't make any real politic sense. Like, play Kim for a second. Put yourself, get yourself out of the American political context and play Kim for a second. If you were the Kim regime, how exactly would you play this? Well, I'll explain what you would do if you were the Kim regime and why I'm so skeptical that anything is going to come out of this that's positive for the United States in just a second. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at FilterBuy. So, the, the reality is that right now it is very cold outside and you're spending a lot of time inside. And because you're spending a lot of time inside, you are breathing in a lot of filtered air. Well, filtered air very often is dirtier than the air outside, but it doesn't have to be that way. FilterBuy is America's leading provider of HVAC filters for homes and small businesses, and they want you to breathe better. They carry over six hundred different filter sizes, including custom options, all shipped free within 24 hours. Plus, they are manufactured right here in the United States. They offer a multitude of MERV options all the way up to hospital grade. So you're removing that dangerous pollen, the mold, the dust, the other allergy aggravating pollution while maximizing the efficiency of your system. And just as importantly, they have a subscription plan. So when you order those filters, they will be refreshed every so often, ensuring that you are never breathing unclean air that you put in the new filters. You forget about it for three years. You look at it and it's filled with mold. That's never going to happen again when you get on their subscription plan. Right now, you can get 5% when you set up auto delivery. So you never need to think about those air filters again. Breathe better with FilterBuy.com. It's FilterBuy.com. That's FilterBuy.com. And right now, again, when you, when you order through FilterBuy.com, you save 5% when you set up that auto delivery system. And again, all orders ship free within 24 hours, 600 size options. Make sure that the air that you and your family are breathing are cl is clean. It's just the, the least you can do to make sure that your kids are healthy. So check it out at FilterBuy.com. Make sure you're healthy as well, obviously. FilterBuy.com, FilterBuy.com. Get 5% off. When you get that, uh, when you get that auto uh, auto delivery program. Okay, so uh, imagine that you are Kim Jong Un for a second. Let's get out of Trump's head. We spend so much time in American politics in the head of Donald Trump, which is a weird place. Let's be real; it's kind of a weird place. An even weirder place is the Kim regime. But I'm not convinced, and I've never been convinced that the Kim regime is crazy. I've never been convinced that Kim Jong Un is a crazy guy. It seems to me that he is a person who is out for self-preservation and preservation of his evil regime. Now, if you are him and you are looking around, if you were he, and you were looking around at the world, and you were thinking to yourself, how can I ensure that I maintain power and that I stay in power for the rest of my life? And the first thing you would do is develop nuclear weapons. 
Right? That is the very first thing that you would do, because that would ensure that there was a deterrent, that should the United States attack you, you threaten to nuke Seoul, and that's the end of it. Right? You get to stay, because no one wants Seoul moved. No one wants 100,000 people dead in the middle of Seoul, even if it means liberating North Korean, the, the North Korean people who have been subjugated for decades on end. So you want your nuclear weapons. But what you also want is economic support from the West. You want them signing checks to you. And so what you do is every so often, you offer to give up your nuclear weapons, and you say, you know, we'll, we'll give those things right up. You know, we'll make concessions to you. Just sign us some checks. Remove the sanctions, sign us some checks. We won't do any, we won't do any testing, we won't fire missiles, we won't test our, our bombs. And then you spend the next three years in the bunker developing new weapons. And then three years later, you come out and you do the same routine. And there are new sanctions, another round of sanctions, and you've shown the world that you're strong and that they get and they're deterred. That's the way this logic works. It's not illogical what Kim is doing. It's not. I mean, threatening the United States sounds illogical. It's not illogical because the whole point of him threatening the United States is to prevent the United States from invading his country and sacking him or prevent the, the, the North Koreans themselves from sacking him. Right? That's, the whole, that's the whole point here. So why does he want to meet with Trump? Because, again, it gives him that sort of legitimacy. Now, what's, again, what's funny is you're seeing the left-wing media very excited about all this. Aaron Burnett said that if Trump solves North Korea, he will be seen as a great president. Here's what she had to say. All right. Well, thanks very much to all of you. Just an extraordinary evening and, of course, opening the door to the big question. If President Trump can truly solve this problem, uh, that would be going down as a great president. And there's no way around that. That is the reality here. Okay. Well, is that the reality or is it just that you are going to celebrate that? And if that's the case, if that's what Trump is going for, if what Trump really wants out of life is this big win, then I'm not sure exactly you know, how he doesn't get played by Kim. The way that you negotiate best is when you're willing to walk away from the table. The question now, is Trump going to be willing to walk away from the table? That's questionable. That's questionable. I'll explain why in just a second. So there are a bunch of, of good commentary pieces out about what's happening right now. The biggest problem here is that you can see a situation in which Trump goes into the meeting. An offer is made by Kim. It's not a good offer. It's an offer like, get all the troops out of South Korea and we will denuclearize. And Trump says, sure, let's do it. Because, hell, I don't really like this alliance with South Korea all that much anyway. I've made noises along those lines. There's a good piece by, uh, by Thomas Wright over at The Atlantic talking about all of this, pointing out that Trump is not oriented toward the alliance with North Korea in a particularly strong way. He, Wright says, since the mid-1980s, he has argued that America's alliances are a bad deal. Initially, his wrath was focused on Japan and the Arab states, but in 2013, he said, how long will we go on defending South Korea from North Korea without payment? When will they start to pay us? And then he said, in 2015, we have 28,000 soldiers on the line in South Korea between the madman and them. We get practically nothing compared to the cost of this. So maybe he will get to withdraw troops, which he wants, in exchange for an end to ICBM testing, which he also wants. You could see Trump making this deal. It would be bad for the United States because that's bad policy. It's possible that he's, he plays this as America first. And it's also possible that Trump is ego-invested. And that wouldn't be unique to Trump. One of the big problems with meeting with dictators, like the dictators of Iran, one of the biggest problems here is that when you do that, you end up in a situation where if you do not proclaim a win, it is seen as a political loss. So when President Obama spent an awful lot of time negotiating a deal with the Iranian mullahs, with the, with the worst people on earth, it gave him a stake in then proclaiming that they were not actually violating law. It gave him a stake in pretending that Iran was a moderate state. So remember, the whole pitch in Iran that was pushed by Ben Rhodes, that liar, that liar par excellence, the lie was that the Iranians had moderated and that they wanted to meet with us because they had moderated. And then we made concessions to them because they had moderated. And our concessions would make them further moderate. None of that was true. They're just as extreme and radical and evil as they always have been. The Iranian government has always been this. They have not changed one iota. They have, if anything, strengthened their pro-terror regime. But all of Obama's acolytes will still tell you that Obama maintained the moderation of the regime, that Obama pushed that regime toward the center. The reason being that Obama was invested in the success of his deal. And if it turned out that Iran basically just screwed him and took the money and ran, then Obama looks like a sucker. Well, Trump may feel the same sort of thing. If he gets in a room with Kim, there's two possibilities. He walks out of the room pissed, or he walks out feeling like he's won something. The media cheer him, he wins a Nobel Peace Prize, and then he spends the rest of his presidency talking about how North Korea has moderated under his influence. That's a serious possibility here. And it's not a serious reality. I just don't think North Korea is gonna, is gonna change anytime soon. I don't think they're gonna open up. I don't think that we're looking at Gorbachev and Kim Jong-un. I don't think that we're looking at anything remotely like that. Now, 
again, maybe I'm totally wrong. It's possible. It's possible that Trump is the creature of genius that his supporters suggest he is. Noah Rothman at Commentary says, sometimes it takes an outsider unburdened by the stifling conventions and preconceptions that impede the practice of diplomacy to see the obvious. Trump is that outsider. Sometimes Trump's distance from diplomacy's precepts allow him to see its hobgoblins as they are. That was the case when his administration threw away custom by deciding again to consign North Korea to the list of state terror sponsors, to institute a renewed sanctions regime targeting Iran, and to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. This, Noah Rothman, by the way, is not a Trump fan. He really does not like Trump. But what he's saying here is possible, right? The risk that professional diplomats feared would result from these maneuvers never materialized, and only a risk-prone executive could have achieved these successes. Trump's particular facility is not without its dangers. Sometimes the conventional wisdom for a re is conventional for a, for a reason. Donald Trump's decision to sit down with North Korea's Kim Jong-un at Pyongyang's request, for example, is fraught with more potential for risk than reward. So here is the risk. He says, on Thursday night, Trump said that he'd received a letter from the North Korean despot from the South Koreans, and he said that he had been willing to sit down with him. And Trump's defenders say that this isn't a concession, but here's the problem. The arrangement is already a lopsided one in North Korea's favor, and the stakes only get higher from here. This is the big one. It's a gambit that could pay off, but the United States gets only one shot at this. If it fails, American losses will not be minimal. The meeting between the leader of the free world and the criminal proprietor of the world's largest open-air prison might produce a breakthrough. Trump might convince Kim to agree to the permanent and verifiable dismantling of his nuclear program, thus surrendering the only leverage that got North Korea to the table in the first place. Kim's long-range missile program might be on the table for the first time in 20 years. In exchange, Trump could offer diplomatic recognition, a peace treaty, or sanctions relief. A grand bargain is possible in theory. But, but, is that likely? Is that likely? It could also, uh, if, if the maneuver were to fail, or return to dialogue at lower functionary levels, or even through back channels, might be regarded as a fruitless pursuit, which leaves the United States with only one viable way to neutralize the North Korean nuclear program. So there's a lot of risk to all of this. Again, I don't think Trump is versed enough in these things to, to pull off a major diplomatic coup. I am perfectly happy to change my mind if he does so. Uh, I'm open to the idea that this is all a work of genius. It's possible. Uh, do I think that it's likely? I, I do not think that it is likely. I think this is more risk than reward. And I think that, again, this comes down more to political considerations than it does to uh, genius manipulation of, of the North Korean regime. Okay, so before I go any further, I want to talk about Trump on tariffs. Trump has announced his new tariff program yesterday, which is not great. Uh, I want to discuss our new advertisers over at Keeps. So, Keeps is the easiest way to keep your hair. And the fact is that if you have hair loss in your family, there's a good shot that you are going to lose your hair as well. Guys, it starts really early. And once that hair starts to go, it ain't coming back. And that's why it's important that you preemptively strike with Keeps. Now, Keeps offers the only two hair loss products that are clinically proven to keep the hair that you have. You can sign up in less than five minutes. It's entirely online. It's only $10 to $35 a month. Normally, this sort of medication goes for like 85 bucks. Okay, this is half of what you would typically pay at the pharmacy. Getting started with Keeps is really easy. So you just answer a few questions and you snap some photos. Uh, I've done it myself. You snap some photos at the top of your head and you send them in and then a licensed doctor remotely reviews your information and gives you the right prescription all without ever leaving your couch. And within two to three days, a three-month supply of your treatment will arrive perfectly packaged at your door. There are only two treatments that are FDA licensed and Keeps offers both of them. Stop hair loss today, the easy way, with Keeps offering customized treatment plans with the only clinically proven hair loss products for about a buck a day from the comfort of your couch. To receive your first month of treatment for free, go to Keeps.com slash Ben. It's a pretty awesome deal. Keeps.com slash Ben. That is K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Ben. A free month of treatment at Keeps.com slash Ben. It keeps your hair today because if you don't do it today, it's going to be gone tomorrow. Again, even if you have your hair right now, then you should be you know, wary if your dad is missing his, for example. So make sure that you get started now. And, uh, you know, that, that here's a useful thing to have. Keeps.com slash Ben, and you get a month of treatment for free. Again, this is all through licensed doctors who review your information. So check that out. Keeps.com slash Ben. I use it myself. It's great. Okay, so meanwhile, the president of the United States has announced that he is doing his tariff plan. So I've spent the last several days talking about why tariffs are bad policy. Um, yeah, if, if you are still... Confused about that, go back and listen to the other podcast. The short story is that basically a tariff is a tax that taxes all other Americans on behalf of one industry. So if you are not in the steel industry and you are in the car industry, then you just got taxed. Your, your industry is going to lose jobs because the steel cost that went into the making of your car just went up in order to benefit the steel industry. So Trump only has authority to do this under a 50-year-old law that gives him the ability to say that national security concerns are driving him on tariffs. So here is Trump proclaiming that this was a security consideration. It is, by the way, not a security consideration. It is pre pretty clearly not a, a security consideration in any serious 
way. The fact is that well over 70% of all American steel consumed in the United States uh, is American, meaning that all the steel that we consume is American steel. The amount that's coming from China is like 2%. Uh, the, the, the countries that are most affected by these tariffs are importing 6% total of America's steel because Trump has now exempted Canada and Mexico. So it's amazing. The same guy who says that NAFTA is a real boondoggle is saying that we have to ensure that Canada and Mexico can still ship steel into the United States. Canada is the number one importer of steel, exporter of steel from Canada into the United States. Um, again, none of this is good economic policy. It is worth noting, by the way, that the Trump economy is booming. Okay, so in February, we gained 313,000 jobs. That is a massive number of jobs. Okay, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, after revisions, job gains have averaged 242,000 over the last three months. Wages continue to rise for the first time in a long time. In February, the average hourly earnings for all employees on private non-farm payrolls rose by four cents following a seven cent gain in January. Over the year, average hourly earnings have increased by 68 cents or 2.6%, which is not insignificant. The number of Americans not in the labor force is still 95 million. So that has maintained, but that's including a lot of people who are retired. That's including a lot of people uh, who have gone on unemployment. It's basically the same number as under Obama. So the economy continues to boom. Economists had expected 200,000 jobs to be created in February. Instead, it's well over 300,000. It's 330,000. So why would this be the best time for the president to undermine the economy with a set of tariffs that are sure to rock the markets? That doesn't make a lot of sense, but here's Trump saying that he's doing it for security reasons. The actions we're taking today are not a matter of choice. They're a matter of necessity for our security. We're already seeing the national security benefits of this order. Okay, that is not true. Uh, the idea that, that it, is a, it is a national security concern is wrong. The United States was not uh, a, a the, the United States shifted its entire car industry into steelmaking for tanks during World War II. During the entirety of World War II, I heard this statistic yesterday, it blew me away. During the entirety of World War II, only about 300 cars were manufactured in the United States total because there was no one here to drive them, and all of the manufacturing production was shifted to war-making ability. If you think the United States cannot supply its war-making material with the steel industry we've got at home, it's because you don't know anything about the American steel industry. We are producing exactly the same amount of steel that we did in 1983. Okay, so for, it's, been, it's been absolutely constant for nearly 40 years. It's just, it's just ridiculous to suggest this is a real security concern. It's not. Congress should step in and do something. They probably won't. The, the best moment of this, by the way, the best moment of Trump's announcement yesterday on steel was this. I just, this is so fantastic. It is, this is pure Trump, okay? It does not get better than this. So Trump is talking to a bunch of steel workers. A bunch of the union members, by the way, have said that they, they love this. They're very happy with this. So Trump was talking to a member of the steel workers union, and, uh, and this was hilarious. So he says to the guy that your dad is really proud of you looking down from heaven. Watch this. It's it just, it's not important, but it is really, really funny. And it's, it's peak Trump. This is peak Trump right here. Well, your father, Herman, is looking down. He's very proud of you right now. Oh, he's now. still alive. He's huh? Oh, he is? Well, then he's, then he's even more proud of you. Then he's even more proud. <laughs> Pete Trump right there. Your father is looking down. No, my, my dad's still alive, man. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Pretty spectacular. Again, that, that, that says nothing about Trump per se. It's just really, really funny. It's like when Joe Biden said at a rally uh, that he asked a guy who was a paraplegic to stand up and take a bow. It's just, just spectacular stuff from the president of the United States right there. Uh, the steelworkers unions are, of course, very happy. The AFL-CIO is very happy. Now, I was of the impression that a bunch of people on the right were not real fans of the AFL-CIO, one of the big Democrat-supporting unions uh, in American history, that when you please the unions, that you are actually pleasing the people who least support free markets. Right. This, this was my impression. But Trump is, of course, very happy to reach out to those unions. He thinks this is going to win him Indiana. He thinks this is going to win him Pennsylvania again. What he doesn't understand is that all of the same states that, that he is targeting are also damaged by steel tariffs because there are a lot of jobs in those states that are reliant on industries that are going to be hurt by the steel tariffs themselves. This is the map that people that in, in the administration had shown Trump. I mean, they showed him that there are a bunch of Rust Belt states that actually lose thanks to his tariff proposals. And Trump apparently decided to buck them anyway uh, because he thinks that he's going to be able to have stories about steel workers, you know, smelting again. Uh, Leo Girard is a member of one of these steel workers unions. He says, we've been fighting this for 30 years, and that's why this is the United Steelworkers. This is why we are so happy about President Trump's tariff plans. Leo, but what do you say to these folks out there that are saying, why are we protecting a handful of jobs when it's going to make everything else more expensive for the majority of Americans? We're doing it because, to tell you the truth, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Uh, we've been fighting this fight for 30 years, and for 30 years, the American steel industry, the American aluminum industry has been under attack 
by, by countries that don't play by the rules. Okay, so a couple of things that are worth noting here. So the language of don't play by the rules is kind of a weird language. So what rules are they not playing by? If the idea is that the United States has different environmental regulations than China, obviously that's true. But is that a change in the rules? And is the idea that everybody in the United States is supposed to pay for a less competitive industry when another industry is subsidized overseas? And this is not the way that, that trade typically works. So are people in the steel industry damaged by so-called unfair trade practices from China? You know, China using, manu using manual labor, China, China subsidizing its industries. There's no question that the steel industry in the United States is damaged by that. Now, it is true the vast majority of jobs that have been lost in the steel industry have not been lost thanks to Chinese competition. They've been lost thanks to technology because the United States has actually gotten stronger in its steel industry because they've developed new technologies that make us more competitive. It's one of the reasons why competition, open competition, is better. Punishing the rest of the United States because China has lower environmental regulations in order to save a particular industry, I'm not sure what makes the steel industry any more special than farming. I'm not sure what makes farming any more special than healthcare. I'm not sure what makes healthcare any more special than media. A job is a job is a job in the United States, and there's a good case to be made that a lot of the people who say they would be happy working in the steel industry would be a lot happier not working in the steel industry if the shift of jobs in the United States is any indicator. Right? People tend to be happier with their jobs now than they were 40 years ago. Well, all of that said, um, is it true that there are a bunch of countries that have subsidized their own steel regimes in order to, their, their own steel industries in order to undercut the United States? The answer is yes, but the solution to that is not necessarily for us to try to reciprocally harm those countries. And just because those countries decide to tax their own citizens in order to benefit the steel industry doesn't mean that we have to do the same. And that, that seems like foolish policy to me. And just because they decide to cut off their own economy at the knees to help their steel industry grow doesn't mean that we ought to do the same. Economies are more than steel, obviously. So we're going to discuss this a little bit more. We'll talk about congressional blowback on all this. Plus, President Trump has one nominee to a federal position that has been largely overlooked, and there is no excuse for overlooking this nominee because it's a real problem. Plus, there's big, new, big breaking news about a possible Supreme Court vacancy. We'll talk about that. But you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com for that. So for $9.99 a month, you can subscribe to dailywire.com. When you do, you get the rest of this show live. You get to be part of my mailbag. So today, right here in my hands, I hold questions from the mailbag. We only answer questions from people who subscribe. And we answer live questions from people who subscribe. Also, we have an episode of The Conversation coming up Tuesday, March 13th, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific, featuring me. Subscribe today to be a part of the conversation, and then I can answer your questions in an hour-long live Q&A. My conversation will stream live on the Ben Shapiro Facebook page and the Daily Wire YouTube channel. It'll be free for everyone to watch. Only subscribers can ask the questions. To ask those questions as a subscriber, log into our website, dailywire.com. You head over to the conversation page, and you watch the live stream. And then you just start typing your questions into the Daily Wire chat, books and a chat box, and I will answer those questions as they come in for an entire hour, unless you keep asking about pudding, as always, guys. Once again, subscribe to get your questions answered by me. Tuesday, March 13th, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific, and join the conversation. So you get all of those magical things with the subscription. And if you want this, the very greatest in all beverage vessels, the leftist tiers, hot or cold tumbler, all you have to do is get the annual subscription for $99 a year. It is cheaper than the monthly, and you will be refreshed and emboldened by use of this beverage vessel when you get the annual subscription. You just want to listen free for, uh, for free later, go over to YouTube, go over to iTunes. Please subscribe. Please leave us a review. It always helps us. We are the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast in the nation. So Congress, obviously, is pushing back against the, the president's tariffs. But are they really going to push? Are they really going to do anything? Probably not. You know, Senator Ron Johnson says, listen, nobody wins a trade war. This is going to harm consumers. Ron Johnson is from one of the states that, that Trump just won. So you might want to listen to him, right? He's, he's from Wisconsin. And again, if we start engaging in trade wars, I just don't believe anybody wins a trade war, quite honestly. There, there may be people that, that are harmed less. Maybe America's in a better position. But I, I just think there's so much collateral damage. I think it's a very risky and dangerous strategy. Okay, I, I obviously agree, but the question is going to be, what do you do about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you actually going to stand up and tell Trump no, or are you just going to sit back and watch him push this policy? One of the things that Trump has done is he's got Republicans in Congress in terror of him. They think that if they fight him in any way, that Trump is just going to come into their district and shellack them, or come into their state and rip them publicly, and then they'll lose their Senate seat. I think that's overblown. I don't think Trump has that sort of sway. I think Alabama showed he doesn't have that sort of sway. Republicans need to stand up to bad policy, even if a Republican is making it. Otherwise, you are not doing your job, Republicans. It is your job to stop this stuff. You do have the legislative authority. Speaking of which, Republicans in Congress must stop the renomination of one of Trump's nominees. Okay, this, this nominee's name 
And this nominee's name is Chai Feldblum. Chai Feldblum is a, a radical Obama appointee to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Okay, The EEOC has the power to regulate industry all over the United States, to withdraw federal contracts from any business that doesn't meet the, the dictates of the EEOC. Industries are routinely sued under the, uh, by the EE, uh, under the auspices of the EEOC. And one of the big issues that's now coming up is whether the federal government is allowed to contract with any business or whether they have to crack down under federal anti-discrimination law on businesses that refuse to, for example, use transgender people in particular industries. So you are a religious-owned bakery, and Bob shows up tomorrow, and he calls himself Babette. Do you have to keep employing Bob? Right? So according to Chai Feldblum, the answer is yes. You are a, a Christian-owned bakery, and a and you contract the federal government. You provide all sorts of bagels to the troops or something. And tomorrow, a guy comes in and he says, I want you to make a big bagel for my, a, a giant bagel for my gay wedding. And you say, listen, I'm a Christian guy, not interested in doing that. This comes up before the EEOC. How do they rule? These are serious questions. The EEOC has an enormous amount of power. Daniel Horowitz over at Conservative Review says, the same power the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau wields over financial institutions, the EEOC wields over property rights, societal norms, and discrimination laws. It holds unconstitutional quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial powers to trump up and adjudicate charges against businesses and colleges over quotas and discrimination. A lot of people have been sued under the EEOC in the private sector. So this is, this is really troublesome. The EEOC uh, has responsibility in the private sector. They don't process complaints of discrimination for federal employees. Those are filed with, with other enforcement agencies, but they provide, uh, according to the their website, they provide quality services that are fair and prompt for both employees and employers in our administrative processing system. And uh, and their job is to is to mediate and, and provide settlements. They're responsible for providing hearings and appeals after the initial processing of complaints by each individual federal agency. This usually applies to federal contractors. So. All of this is, is very troublesome. So what is Chai Feldblum doing? Chai Feldblum was an Obama appointee, and Chai Feldblum uh, has written things like this, quote, when sexual orientation and religious freedom come into conflict, quote, I'm having a hard time coming up with any case in which religious liberty should win. Sexual liberty should win in most cases. There can be a conflict between religious liberty and sexual liberty, but in almost all cases, sexual liberty should win because that's the only way that the dignity of gay people can be affirmed in any realistic manner. So in other words, if you are a religious baker, bake the cake. Quote, just as we do not tolerate private racial beliefs that adversely affect Af African-Americans in the commercial arena, even if such beliefs are based on religious views, we should similarly not tolerate private beliefs about sexual orientation and gender identity that adversely affect the ability of LGBT people to live in the world. So again, equating black people with gay people. So I've said for a long time, I think anti-discrimination law is largely unconstitutional. I think freedom of association means you do get to be a racist in the United States, and then we all use our market power to put you out of business. And that, I think that that's perfectly plausible, and I think that uh, I take a very libertarian view of this sort of stuff, even on issues of race. And I'm a Jew, right? And Jews have you know been banned from country clubs in the United States. The solution to that is build your own country club. But if you want to even say that businesses should not be able to discriminate against Jews or or blacks, that does not mean that businesses don't have the capacity to discriminate against behavior. A sexual orientation is one thing; sexual behavior is another. The, the idea that, that a business doesn't have the capacity to turn down participation in a same-sex wedding is asinine. But that's what this lady says. She says, for all my sympathy for the evangelical Christian couple who may wish to run a bed and breakfast from which they can exclude unmarried straight couples and all gay couples, this is a point where I believe the zero-sum nature of the game inevitably comes into play. And in making the decision in this zero-sum game, I'm convinced society should come down on the side of protecting the liberty of LGBT people. Right? She even says that granting liberty to gay people advances a compelling government interest and that such an interest cannot be adequately protected if pockets of resistance to a societal statement of equality are permitted to flourish. Okay, she is a she is an LGBT fascist when it comes to the government cram downs of particular social issues. And Trump is renominating her to the EEOC. That is unacceptable. It should be stopped by the Senate. There is no way this person should be confirmed. It is astonishing the people in the Senate are not speaking out more clearly about this. I know some people are. I believe Mike Lee from Utah is one of those folks. But you know, it's time for the Senate to stand up on his hind legs just a little bit. Okay. Time for uh, a thing, a couple of things I like, some things I hate, and then we'll get to the mailbag. So, things I like. We have been doing some heaven-themed things to, uh, this week. Uh, so, one of those things really has nothing to do with heaven, but there's some good ex there's some good exploration of immortality and the impact of immortality on how we think. Uh, and that, of course, is uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's *Brothers Karamazov*, one of the great novels in human history. 
Uh, it, is, uh, it is a fantastic novel. Uh, there's great discussion. It's basically a philosophical treatise in the form of a murder mystery. That's, that's essentially how Dostoevsky does his thing. Crime and punishment is the same sort of thing. Brothers Karamazov has a lot of talk specifically about immortality and whether human beings uh, who, who don't believe in heaven can construct moral systems that make any sense. Uh, there's a long conversation about this in the, the famous chapter of the Grand Inquisitor in which uh, one of the brothers, Ivan, uh, tells the story of Jesus coming back, but coming back during the Spanish Inquisition and the Grand Inquisitor questioning Jesus about why he had constructed people with such flaws. Uh, it's, uh, it's a fantastic book, obviously. This is, I think, the best version of the translation uh, by Richard Peviar and Larissa Volokonsky. Uh, this is, uh, it's, it's, the translation in these Russian novels really makes a difference. There's a new translation of War and Peace that makes a huge difference over the old translations. This is a very good translation, I think. So check that one out. Uh, Dostoevsky's Brothers, Karamazov. Have, I've never actually recommended that on the program, I believe, which is a shocker, because that's obviously one of the great novels in human history. Okay, other things that I like. So this is just really funny. So there's this Democratic legislator who decided that she was going to show the world that she hates her gun. So she went and she got her AR-15 from the closet, and then she sawed it off. And she wanted to show everybody that she was going to she was going to make it unworkable. So here's what she did. And then I will tell you what happened next. My husband bought this AR-15. I wasn't happy about it. And after last week, I told him I wanted this gun out of my house. Okay, so there she goes, and she's sawing right through the barrel of the AR-15. And we've seen this routine already. The media features it every time. Mother is joining mom's demand action. I'm marching with the students. Marching for their lives. Okay, there's only there's only one problem with all of this this virtue signaling. Uh, the the ATF, uh, uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, that agency is now looking to prosecute her because it's illegal to own a sawed-off shotgun. It's a, it's illegal to own a sawed-off rifle. You are not allowed to have a rifle that has a short barrel because it is uh, it is capable of being concealed more easily, and also because the spray is greater with a shotgun, particularly like the shorter the barrel is, the greater the spray is. Uh, so she is actually now in danger of prosecution for what she just did. <laughs> So virtue signaling fail. Well done, lady. Just just a work of heartbreaking genius. Okay, other things that, that I love. This is really funny. So the New York Times had to issue one of the great all-time corrections in human history yesterday. Uh, so there was a uh, New York Times editor who, uh, who had to issue a correction because there was a piece referring to the Great Recession as, quote, the time of shedding and cold rocks. Okay, why was it referred to in a New York Times piece, the Great Recession, as the time of shedding and cold rocks? Because apparently this person who was writing the piece forgot to remove a Google Chrome extension, which changes certain phrases to other phrases, okay? It is a it is Google extension that translate millennials to snake people. Okay, so here is the correction from the New York Times. This is legitimately, I'm reading this word for word. Because of an editing error involving a satirical text swapping browser extension, an earlier version of this article swapped in the words time of shedding and cold rocks in place of the correct words, <laughs> great recession. <laughs> Spectacular stuff, well done. First of all, Millennials to Snake People is just a fantastic Chrome extension show. Well done. That's the best thing the New York Times has done in years. Okay, that's just great stuff. Okay, time for a couple of things that I hate. All right, so a couple of things that I hate. So last night I was on Laura Ingram's show on Fox News, and one of the things we were discussing was President Trump had held uh, a forum at the White House in which he discussed the supposed threat of violent video games. Right? He suggested that violent video games are creating more mass shooters, and they showed this montage of, of what some of these violent video games look like. They're incredibly realistic, and of course they are incredibly violent. I mean, this stuff is is really graphic. Right. I mean, it's pretty pretty terrible. Um, now, the, here's the problem. Do, do I think this stuff is really gross and terrible? Yes, I do think this stuff is gross and terrible. I would not let my children play these games. I remember when I was younger, I played a game called Quake. Do you guys remember Quake, or is that before your time? So Quake was a very popular game. I believe they even made a movie out of it at one point. Um, and it was a first-person, what they call a first-person shoot-em-up. Um, Wolfenstein was another popular first-person shoot-em-up when I was growing up. These are, these are now obviously ancient games, and the graphics are really not sophisticated. But they were very bloody, obviously. I'm not going to say I didn't grow up to grow up, be a serial killer because I can't tell you whether I did or not. But I will say the vast majority of people who played Quake did not go on to shoot up schools. And statistically speaking, the notion that violent video games have led to an increase in juvenile crime rates is not true. Okay, it's just not true. Uh, as, the, as the rate of violent video game playing has gone up, the rate of juvenile crime has gone down. And if you look at countries like Japan, 
violent video games are extraordinarily popular in Japan. Juvenile crime is extraordinarily low in Japan. Now, would I let my kids play this? No, because I think that it does desensitize to violence. I think that it is immoral to, to get a thrill from even fake killing innocent people, as you see in some of these situations. Uh, and I think there's certain material that's just too graphic for kids. Right? It's the reason why I wouldn't show an R-rated movie to my, to my four-year-old. I, I think there's, just, there's, there's some material that's not appropriate. But that's a parental decision. And just because we don't like material, this is an area where I've sort of changed my opinion over time. Just because we don't like material doesn't mean that regulation of the material is the best possible solution. And it also doesn't mean that we get to change the social science data to reflect our beliefs. So what the statistics tend to show is that there is a violence desensitization effect with these games, but that doesn't necessarily manifest in behavior. And when people say that it does manifest in behavior, that may be mistaking cause for effect. You may be looking at people who like violent behavior and so they play violent video games. We're taking it as though it's a normal person who plays a violent video game and then they want to engage in violent behavior. It's quite possible that the polarity is the other way around, that the cause and effect is actually reversed, that there's a violent kid who likes playing violent video games because he's a violent kid. And there's no real way to tell that the studies that have been done trying to show whether people have been transformed by these video games show mixed data at best. So I think it's important to look at the data when we're talking about the creation of public policy, even though I think that as a culture, we should heavily discourage these sorts of games uh, from being played by children or young teenagers. Okay, other things that I hate. So it's amazing. The entire left has said that Donald Trump is the reality TV show president. We've never had anything like him before. It's completely unprecedented. Well, well now. Obama is in advanced negotiations, according to Kyle Griffin, with Netflix, to produce a series of high-profile shows that will provide him a global platform after his departure from the White House. People familiar with the discussions tell the New York Times. So apparently Eric Schultz, a senior advisor to the former president, issued a statement. President and Mrs. Obama have always believed in the power of storytelling to inspire. Throughout their lives, they have lifted up stories of people whose efforts to make a difference are quietly changing the world for the better. As they consider their future personal plans, they continue to explore new ways to help others tell and share their stories. So, so much for non-reality TV show Obama. He is now going to be invading your Netflix with his latest series. Um, yes, he was the Hollywood president. I said this at the time. When Trump was elected, the, the great irony of the situation is that Obama thought that he was this great statesman who was not a reality TV, reality TV game show host. And then he had to look across the room at a guy who was his direct polar, polar mirror. He's like Bizarro Superman. Like Bizarro Obama in the form of Trump both reality TV show presidents, one who considers himself a great thinker and one who considers himself an entertainer. Okay, time for the mailbag. So if you're a subscriber, ask your questions now. Michelle says, hi, Ben. I have long been a champion of laissez-faire economics, individualism, and the logic espoused by Ayn Rand. The atheism and rapey love scenes in her work, not so much. Objectivists balk at me when I say logic and Christianity are not mutually exclusive, that Atlas Shrugged is their Bible and Ayn Rand their deity. Am I wrong? If not, is there a way I can better frame this argument? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think that you're not wrong. This is a, a debate that I'm supposed to have, I believe, with Yaron Brook at some point. Uh, I watched his video responding to me on objectivism. And what it seems to me is that what objectivists tend to do is they redefine virtue in objectivist terms. So traditional virtue has suggested that, for example, altruism is a virtue, right? Ayn Rand says altruism in personal relationships is a sin. It's not a virtue. She says that altruism is a mistake because selfishness is a virtue as it is in the marketplace. Because in the marketplace, you have a creative impulse to create that leads you to transform the world. And then you want to take that creative impulse and you want to trade that for more capacity to fulfill that creative impulse. And that's how trade happens. This is how the world is better. I totally agree with this on an economic level. On a personal level, I've always said that one of the big, fun, one of the funny things about Ayn Rand's work is there are never any children in Ayn Rand's work. So Yarnbrook would respond to my suggestion that if I were to operate out of selfishness, I would abandon my children by saying, well, no, that would just be you operating out of like your temporary selfishness. But if you're operating out of your long-term selfishness, you would realize that it is worthwhile to, to do this. Except for the fact that what objectivism does in the moral sphere with regard to personal relationships is it removes my ability to judge whether a behavior is good or bad. I can't actually judge whether somebody else's behavior is good or bad because selfishness is by nature a subjective phenomenon. So I can judge somebody if they're taking away from somebody else, right? If, if, they're, if they're a leech or a mooch, or a, uh, a moocher under the, the Ayn Rand terminology, I can, I can do any of that. Uh, but what I cannot do in, in the personal sphere is blame a, a, a husband for leaving his wife and his children. Because if he made the personal calculation that his happiness would be maximized by leaving his wife and his children, then who am I to judge that? And my answer to that is I can judge that anytime because he just did something wrong. That is a wrong that makes the world worse. It makes his family worse off. He has wronged them because he made a commitment and now he violated that commitment. And you know, so the objectivist would say, well, what does the commitment mean? The commitment, you know, why, why should he fulfill his commitment? Because in the future, maybe he has an interest in doing so. The problem is there's a, there's a line, and I, I'd be interested to discuss this with, with Yaron actually. There, there's a line in objectivism 
that seems to fall quickly into subjectivism when it comes to your, your personal attitude toward those that you care for and your personal activity and moral behavior. Ayn Rand is a perfect example of this, right? She ditched her husband, uh, her, uh, her lover who was 30 years younger than she was, ditched his wife, uh, they got together, Dagny in, in Atlas Shrugged is hopping from bed to bed and everybody's just sort of okay with it, right? All of her former lovers are totally fine with this. This is a giant misread of how human beings actually operate in the real world. Okay, Brendan says, hello, Ben. I saw a story on Facebook that has been getting a lot of praise on conservative pages, but it disturbed me. It's a video of a 10-year-old boy who was accused of bullying other children on the bus. As punishment, he was not allowed to ride the bus for three days. His father decided he was going to make his son run the mile to school every day for those three days as punishment. As someone who was bullied in school, what do you think about the parent's punishment? I think teaching your son not to bully by bullying him doesn't seem like it's in your child's best interest. Huge fan. Thank you so much. So I disagree. I love that story. I think it's a great story. I think bullies should be punished by their parents. I think the way you get bullies to stop bullying is by realizing that the shoe can fit on the other foot. Is by realizing that there are consequences to your action. Okay, it's not through love. Bullies are not stopped through love. Bullies are stopped when they recognize that they can be on the wrong end of the bullying, and so perhaps they should think again before doing so. Uh, Liam says, hey, Ben, with all the turnover in the White House recently, would you ever consider being one of Trump's advisors if a position was offered? Thanks. No, no, this is not my job. My job is to analyze as objectively as possible uh, from a conservative perspective what it is that Trump is doing, and I don't think that working for the Trump administration frees me to do that. I more enjoy discussing ideas and conversing with you uh, than I would you know, flacking for a particular position that I disagree with, which is part of the job when you work for the president. Uh, Christopher says, hi, Ben. Have you ever heard of sovereign citizens? I recently came across YouTube videos of these people having bizarre interactions with police officers where they refuse to identify themselves or show ID. They always claim they don't have to follow laws because they do not consider themselves citizens of the United States. Is there any legal basis for their argument? Thanks. So this is a great philosophical question. So there's no legal basis to their argument under American law. The idea is if you are born in America, you're an American citizen subject to the jurisdiction thereof. That's how American law works. It's how law virtually every country works. But it does pose a question for social contract theory. So if you look in philosophy, if you look at everyone from Locke to Rousseau, there's this idea of social contract theory, that people were living in a state of nature, Hobbes talks about this as well, and that we all came together and we formed a social contract, and then we decided to give up some of our liberties, essentially, or at least to hand over the cultivation of those liberties to a broader communal system, a government, in order to protect us. And this is true in Locke, it's true in Hobbes, it's true in Rousseau, although they have different definitions of the state of nature and what it was that we gave up when we exited the state of nature in favor of a state system. Okay, but there's a question. Okay, what if you are just born, right? You weren't born into a state of nature, you were born into a state. Are you subject, did you consent to being part of that social contract? So Thomas Jefferson thought not. Thomas Jefferson thought that you actually had to, for a while in his career anyway, I think he revised it later in life, he thought that, that you actually had to opt into the system. It wasn't that you had the capacity to opt out, you actually had to opt in. And the, the typical answer given by folks like Locke or Hobbes is that the state of nature was a temporary place. Once you exit it as a society, that is now incumbent on your children to live under the laws of the state. But social contract theory, the idea that everyone is born into a state of nature and you get to make your own decisions, you have your own sovereignty, you get to decide which country to live in, you know, that is, uh, it's an interesting argument. Legally, it's not a particularly interesting argument because obviously states do have sovereignty over a certain amount of land uh, and that sovereignty continues even if you wish not to be part of it. If you don't like it, then you can move somewhere uh, off the grid, which is, you know, the best answer for sovereign citizens living in the middle of Boise, Idaho, and then proclaiming to the cops that you're not subject to the laws of Boise, Idaho is obviously a strategy for winding up in jail. Clayton says, women have become increasingly involved in politics since the early 20th century. What effect do you think the influence of women in politics has had on the current political landscape? Well, again, I like to look at people as individuals. I don't think women and men are the same. Uh, it tends to uh, be that in politics, if you look at the way that, that political appeals are done, uh, that emotional appeals more often are tailored toward women and, uh, and economic appeals are more often tailored towards men. Uh, I, I think that obviously women as fully sentient and rational human beings uh, should be not only voting, but having a voice in our politics. Uh, I think that you know having women as a part of politics is has changed politics in the United States, no doubt. I mean, if you look at the, the way that voting breaks down, this gender gap between women and men has been part of American politics for a long time. I believe, statistically speaking, Republicans would have won virtually every election since 1940 uh, if it had just been men voting. That's not an excuse for women not voting, obviously. That's just a, a statement that Republicans should make their case better to women because women have a lot to add and women have a lot to say. And while I am not a big fan of emotion in politics, I do think that Republicans can tailor their message and, and conservatives can tailor their message uh, to appeal to emotion and also to recognize that uh, some emotional arguments are backed by logic. And just because the, the emotion is high doesn't mean the logic is missing. Kaj says, we all agree paying taxes suck, but what if we could pick and choose where taxes go? I think it would, be help, it would help our priorities to be heard. Well, 
I agree, obviously. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing with a representative government. It's why I oppose omnibus packages. Omnibus packages basically say, you pay your taxes to this giant government. Here's a thousand page bill. All your money's gonna be distributed how we like it. I think that our representatives should present to us each thing they want to spend money on, and then we should yell at them until they stop on each one of those things, unless we like those things. And that would be a much better way of doing things. And Joshua says, uh, Dear Ben, what is your take on whether individuals should be able to fully uh, own auto fully automatic rifles? During our revolution, we had the predecessor to the Gatling gun called the Puckle gun. Love the show. Keep up the good work. So my view is that fully automatic rifles do not justify the risk. The reason that I say that that does not hold true for a semi-automatic rifle is because semi-automatic rifles have been used for literally generations. I mean, we we're talking since the late 19th century. Uh, and not only that, uh, that is the very minimum of a military weapon, military style weapon that would be necessary in order to uh, fight the overreach of a tyrannical government. Uh, I, do, I, I think that you have to draw a balance here because not every right, uh, rights are not absolute. And as Justice Scalia said, uh, Justice Scalia's case in Heller is that it's common use. You know, weapons that were in common use uh, at the time, those are, those are not able to be banned. Obviously, there are hundreds of millions of guns in the United States, uh, including tens of millions of rifles. Uh, and that includes semi-automatics. That's not true of automatics, which have basically been banned in the United States since the 1930s. David says, what do you think of presidential drone strikes targeted killings from a moral and legal perspective? So I don't have a problem with drone strikes and targeted killings against terrorists abroad. I think where this becomes a moral issue, uh, in Rand Paul's view, is when you are targeting American citizens abroad. I don't know why drone strikes are particularly worse than a soldier shooting somebody in the head. So this came up in the case of Anwar al-Awlaki, who's an American citizen abroad, engaging in quasi-terrorist activity. The question was, was he engaging in full-scale terrorist activity that required us to shoot him on the spot, or was he engaged in activity that required us to capture him and bring him back for trial? And this also holds true on American soil. Let's say you have somebody who's engaged in a terror cell in the United States. Can you just drone them? Right? Can you just drone an American citizen? Well, the usual answer has been that if they are an immediate threat to life, sure, just like if somebody uh, is robbing a bank and is threatening a teller, the police can shoot that person. But uh, if you are, if the suggestion is that we can use a drone on an American citizen who's providing a more attenuated risk, uh, then the answer is no, in my opinion. Uh, ben, Chris says, Dear Ben, you're well-read, have seen many movies, and have listened to a substantial amount of music. What are some of your favorite artists, both modern and classic? Well, that's a broad question. Uh, I think you'll have to go back to things I like. I've been doing this for legitimately the last two years, and the list is extensive and long. Um, you know, I, I will say that right now, I, I'm on a Brahms kick. I've been listening to a lot of Brahms lately, uh, a lot of Bach lately. Uh, Bizet's Carmen has been uh, in my rotation, uh, so fair bit of opera. Uh, if you want, you want some great opera, go go get the the user friendly version. Is go get some class, uh, the kind of best of Pavarotti, uh, and and you'll get some some great opera. Uh, Austin says, what's the best way to explain the necessity of the Second Amendment and firearm ownership to a non-American who may not understand it? Well, the best way to explain the necessity of the Second Amendment is that the history of the world is replete with tyrannical regimes who have confiscated firearms from their own people uh, or, and run roughshod over their own people or run roughshod over sovereign citizens of another state. And having an armed, an armed citizenry willing to stand up to tyranny is a prerequisite to liberty, even if those arms are never used. Travis says, Ben, my AP government teacher is very pro-gun control. He sent me an article detailing the gun control policies the founders used, including laws requiring armed citizens to appear at mandatory musters where their guns would be inspected and door-to-door -door surveys for appropriate weapons, which sounds outlandish for today's America. I am very pro-Second Amendment and want to remain respectful, but also don't want to appear weak as I'm the strongest defender in our class. How do I refute this? So I'd actually want to see the specific gun control policies that he's talking about. My guess is laws requiring armed citizens to appear at mandatory musters was because there were militias, right? There were militias, and if you were a citizen between a certain age and a certain age, then you were required to be in a militia in certain states in the union. But that wasn't to suggest that if you weren't in the militia that your gun would be confiscated. That's not quite the same thing. Private citizens owned their arms. They showed up to muster for the militia, they still own their arms, and they use their arms for self-defense. They use those arms for hunting. And in the case of the Shays Rebellion or the Whiskey Rebellion, they use their arms for more than that. Uh, Paul says, hey, Ben, I was wondering how you stay so motivated and energetic. I'm in the last year of college in Massachusetts. I work out six times a week and eat pretty well, and I lack motivation and much energy. I know about schedules. I'm not sure that makes me motivated to do an event. What do you do? Well, I think that it's important to actually lay out your day. I think you have to have a list of things you want to get done in the day, and you actually have to say, I'm going to work on something for two hours and no longer. The easiest thing to do is to burn yourself out on a project, and then you're just dead the rest of the day. The best thing to do is to shift. I, I, it's sort of like interval training. You know, Interval training and exercise is the idea that instead of you just working out bench press for an hour, instead you do like a quick burst of energy here, and then a quick, burst of a quick burst of energy there, and you sort of have muscle confusion. I think the same thing holds true in work. So I'll do a burst of energy where I do the show, and then I'll have a burst of energy where I write write articles, and I'll have a burst of energy where I work on my books, and I take frequent breaks. I take a break every hour, every two hours, get up, stretch, walk around, 
go for a walk. I think going outside is really important. When I was living in Massachusetts, it's really hard. It's hard not to be lethargic living in Massachusetts in the winter, let me tell you. When I was in Boston and Massachusetts in the winter, uh, it is cold outside, you're not going outside, and this makes you lethargic and lazy because you're stuck in one room the entire day. Doesn't matter, put on your gloves, put on your shoes, go outside, walk around for 15 minutes, come back in, you'll feel energized and, and better for the day. I think frequent breaks are actually a useful useful thing. Uh, final question here. Josh says, with all the upcoming release of your new book on, on the downfall of Judeo-Christian and Aristotelian values, are there any similar books to read beforehand so that we can have a better understanding of your thought process? Thanks in advance, Josh. Um, so uh, I, there, there's a book that I've recommended on the show before called uh, The Passion of the Western Mind that I think is really excellent. I'm a big fan of that book. Um, I think that um, The Story of Philosophy by Will Durant is a really good primer on the history of Western philosophy, uh, really worth reading. Uh, there's a book that I'm, I'm enjoying and using as a resource, uh, History of Political Philosophy, edited by Leo Strauss. Uh, that's, that's a really good one. These are all thick tomes. Uh, Passion of the Western Mind is probably the least thick of those. Um, After Virtue is another book I've recommended on the show that deals with some of these same issues, although I think I'm coming at it from a slightly different angle, uh, by Alistair McIntyre. That is worth reading as well. So those, those, there are a few. That, that will give you reading for the next four months. So <laughs> when you finish that, then we can talk. And that's if you read fast. Okay, so we will be back here on Monday with much, much more. And we'll find out fallout from the North Korean meeting, whether that's going to happen, how that's going to go down. I'm sure there will be a lot to talk about. There always is. I'm Ben Shapiro. Have a great weekend. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Mathis Glover, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. PureTalk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So... I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.